My name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Really glad to have you all here. We are going through a series in the book of Hebrews called The Sermon God Wrote. A uh, number of months now in this series. And I will just say, before we dive into this passage today, the verses that we're gonna be looking at today in Hebrews chapter six, verses four through nine, uh, are about the, one, the, the, the ones that have caused me about the most stress uh, looking ahead, knowing that this passage was coming up. These are very intense warning verses. And what's more is they are very contested. There's a lot of disagreement a difference of opinion on how best to interpret these verses. What exactly is the author of Hebrews really trying to say? <clears throat> Let me say this. I'm going to teach what I believe that God is saying to us through these verses. There may be uh, differences of perspective, differences of opinion that you might have, and I want you to know that that's okay from the outset. Uh, we want to focus and be very firm on things that are absolutely critical and essential to salvation. The perspective on this one is, is, as I would say, it's not unimportant, but it is not of ultimate importance. And so if you have a different opinion than I do, then you are free to, to think that. And uh, if you want to send me an email telling me where I'm wrong, my email address as always is Shane at Sound City Bible Church. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, because, because we understand that there are many godly, wonderful Biblical, biblically faithful men and women who, who see some of these things a little bit different. I'm just gonna tell you what it is that I believe that God is saying to us through these scriptures. The second thing I want to just point out to you before we dive in is that this week is a very stern warning passage. And so it's not um, unlikely that you may leave here today feeling a little bit weighted, a little bit heavy, a little bit kind of sobered. And I wanna encourage you to come back next week because next week we have one of the more uh, encouraging passages of assurance of salvation really in the whole Bible. And that's just a reminder of why it's so important that we gather regularly for the teaching of God's word. We as a church love to just go line by line, verse by verse through books of the Bible. And if you only come every now and again, then you miss out on, on the bigger picture. And I want you to have that because I don't want you just to come on the weeks when there's a stern warning. I want you to come on the weeks when there's encouragement as well so that we can really learn from the whole counsel of God's word. So with that said, let's do this. Let's dive in. Hebrews chapter six, verses four through nine. I'll read these verses, we'll pray, and then we'll spend some time unpacking them. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned." Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. 
Father God, I ask that your sharp, two-edged sword, the sword of your word, would do its work today. Holy Spirit, we ask that you bring these words to life in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives. God, I ask that you would help me to teach your word truthfully. And there are implications from these verses, many questions that are raised. God, I pray that our hope would not be in our theological precision, but our hope would be in a savior whose name is Jesus Christ. God, I ask that you would <clears throat> give us all soft and teachable hearts now as we spend time looking into your word. Help us to see wonderful things. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been going through the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews has been relentless in his call, in his encouragement to his hearers to not fall away from Jesus. We've seen multiple warning passages. Now, don't drift away. Pay attention. Don't become dull of hearing. Listen. The author of Hebrews knows that we, apart from, from discipline, apart from faithfulness, apart from God's sustaining grace, our tendency would be to drift. We live in a world uh, where you could think of it like a river that's flowing. There's a stream. And there's no such thing as neutral. If you put a boat into a river, even if the engine is not running, it's going to flow with the stream. You need an anchor. You need something to hold you steady. The author of Hebrews has been just relentless. And another thing that the author of Hebrews has been relentless in is his smashing of false assurances. Do you guys know what assurance of salvation is? Assurance of salvation is the great blessing and benefit of the gospel that if you are saved by Jesus, you do not have to live in fear that you're somehow going to become unsaved, that you are loved and saved not by your own works, but by the grace of God. And God, throughout the pages of the scriptures gives us all sorts of words of assurance. You and I can know that salvation is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God and that is very assuring. However, there is such a thing as false assurance. There is such a thing as thinking that you are safe when in fact you are not. And the author of Hebrews has also been relentless in taking a baseball bat, taking a sledgehammer to weak, cracked, faulty foundations, a foundation that will not actually stand firm to the end of time. He wants us as Christians to have our assurance of salvation in the right foundation. An analogy maybe that came to mind for me would be if you were talking to somebody who, who purchased a car and they bought this car because they read on the internet that it was the safest car on the market. And as we all know, everything on the internet is true. They read this, this report, they checked the different media outlets. This is the safest car on the market and they're about to turn the ignition on and drive off and there's a mechanic standing nearby that says, yes, this particular model is the safest one on the market, but this one has the brake lines cut. 
Oh yeah, and the ignition sticks. If you get in this car and drive off, you are going to die. And the purchaser of the car says, no, 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 it's fine. I, I read the report. It's the safest car on the market. It's a little bit like that. The author of Hebrews wants us to have assurance of salvation in the right place. Namely, the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, his blood, his righteousness. See, the context for this passage here if you'll think back a couple of weeks, the author of Hebrews kind of, he made a little bit of a detour. He's, he's wanting to teach people about Jesus, our high priest. But then he says, you've become dull of hearing. You're not listening. You're not paying attention. I can tell that you're starting to drift. He says, uh, I want to help us go into the deeper, meatier, weightier topics, the things of God, but, but I can't do it because I got to go back again and lay foundations. And he, he starts to talk about, uh, you know, being infants in your thinking. And he talks about how we need to go on to maturity if, if this is what God would permit. And and then today he continues that stream of thought by talking about a group of people who do not stay faithful to Jesus, who do not press on to maturity, who do not remain faithful to Jesus Christ until the end of their lives. He's going to give a very scary picture about what happens to those who end up not being faithful to Jesus. And see, for you and for me, I said this a minute ago, it's a very contested set of passages. This could be easy to get very theological about it. Let's, let's get very theological. And we do have to go into some deep theological waters. But I know that for many of us, these verses are not merely theory. This is real life. Some of you are afraid that if I proclaim a message of the absolute assurance of salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, some of you are afraid that you might take that to just go live a, a life of licentiousness, a licensed, sinful life, just doing whatever it is that you want to do, or you're concerned that others will hear it and take it that way. Others of you have a really sensitive conscience, and you hear verses like this, and you say, I knew it. I knew I was beyond the grace of God. I knew I've screwed up just one too many times and I'm sure that these verses are about me. There's no hope for me. Others of you have family members, children, close friends who at one point made a profession of faith and now if you looked at their life, you, you really have no way of knowing if they're really a Christian or not and you are genuinely burdened and concerned for them. This is not theory for many of you. This is real life. There's some deep questions that come out of these verses and answers that have ramifications for how we live our lives and how we understand our God. I wanna give some context. First, I want you to understand just when it comes to this passage, there's basically four common views that people hold. The first most commonly held view is that these verses are describing someone who is genuinely a Christian. I mean, these, these descriptions, uh, man, they've been enlightened, they've tasted the heavenly gift, they've shared the Holy Spirit. That's gotta be describing a genuine Christian who then apostatizes or, or, or walks away from the faith and they've now lost a salvation that they once had. Just to be clear, I do not hold that view. Your elders do not hold this view, but it is a very common one that you will find in our culture and in American evangelical Christianity in particular. 
Second common view that people have when they look at these verses is it's a loss of heavenly rewards. What we're talking about falling away, we're not talking about losing salvation, we're talking about losing eternal rewards. Some people think that, that, that what the author of Hebrews is talking about is if you don't remain faithful to Jesus, you'll still be saved, but you'll miss out on some of the blessings that would be given to you uh, in heaven. Uh, this one's a bit more of a stretch. It's, it's not particularly common, but it is out there. Um, and I would spend more time explaining why, but I wanna just say other things and there's a lot to get through today. I think it's just a bit of a stretch from the text. The third perspective that people have on these verses is that they're just theoretical or they're more of a, of a warning. Actually, one of my favorites, Charles Spurgeon, kind of leaned in this direction. Basically, these verses are in here. They're describing something that is just theoretical. It's just hypothetical. It wouldn't really happen, but God puts these verses, these warnings into uh, the, pa the pages of Hebrews or other places so as to keep his people going forward to, to hear these warnings and to spur us on to faithfulness to Jesus. Now, I do believe that God uses warning passages like this to keep Christians moving forward, to keep Christians faithful to Jesus, but I also don't believe that it's um, consistent with the character of God or the nature of his word that God would just put some hypothetical situation in the pages of the scripture just maybe for us to kind of think about. Uh, that's, that's incongruent. That seems inconsistent with the nature of God's revealed word. And I think that there's purpose in this. And we'll explain more later. Number four, what's lost here, this is the fourth view, is what's lost is not a loss of salvation or a loss of heavenly rewards, but what is lost is false appearances, false pretenses. Someone who looks on the outside like they are a genuine believer in Jesus, eventually at some point in their life turns, falls away, stops, following Jesus. And as we're going to see, this is a really extreme case, by the way. This isn't your average run-of-the-mill kind of backsliding. This is some pretty intense, uh, direct rejection of the grace of God. But what, what is lost here is pretense. What is lost here is that false assurance, that faulty, flawed foundation. And I want to give us a couple of guiding principles before we dive into these verses because I want us to think biblically. So, so, so big picture, New Testament. When you think about the New Testament, the New Testament assumes, expects that there are going to be false believers. This is not unique to the book of Hebrews. This is throughout the pages of the New Testament. In fact, virtually every single one of the authors who contributed anything to the New Testament has something to say about this at one point or another. Let me give you just a few examples. In Matthew chapter seven, Jesus himself is speaking uh, and he's speaking to people who, who come to him and say, Lord, Lord. And he says, not everyone who cries, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. And on that day, they're gonna say, Lord, didn't we do all sorts of things? We prophesied, we healed the sick, we cast out demons, we did many mighty works. And Jesus says, I'm gonna look at them and say, depart from me, I never knew you. What a, what a heartbreaking verse that is. God, we did all these amazing things for you. Aren't you impressed with us? And Jesus says, I never knew you. Acts chapter 20, the apostle Paul is about to leave from Ephesus and he's leaving the, the elders who are in charge of the church in Ephesus. And he's given them some kind of final words and he says, I know that when I leave, there are fierce wolves who are gonna come in 
and they're gonna not spare the flock. And then he, he says something really upsetting, really disconcerting in verse 30. He says, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. From among your own selves, these, these false Christians, they're not gonna parachute in, they're actually gonna rise up from within you. In Acts chapter eight, going back a few chapters, there's a story about Simon the magician or Simon uh, uh, Magus, as he's sometimes called. He, he, he says in verse 13 of Acts eight, it says, Simon, he, he heard the gospel. It says he believed. Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. He believed, he got baptized and he had a pastoral mentor, Philip. Well, then the apostle Peter shows up and they start doing uh, just miraculous works of the Holy Spirit. And Simon the magician goes up to Peter and says, hey, I'll buy that power from you. I gotta get that. How much silver is that gonna cost me? The apostle Peter, never one to pull his punches, said, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. You don't belong with us, Simon, the apostle Peter says. Repent, Peter says, and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Peter's here looking at someone who, Peter says, I'm not, I'm not sure if it's even possible for you to repent. Your heart's so sick before the Lord. And lastly, the apostle John says, they went out from us. He's talking about these false teachers. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. The New Testament expects that we're gonna come across false believers. Second thing I want you to remember contextually is what we learned a few chapters back in Hebrews chapter three, we learned that salvation is three-dimensional. You and I often speak of salvation, let me just briefly summarize, briefly recap. If you want more on this, uh, you can find the sermons and the notes and such on our website. But briefly, we often think about salvation in past tense terms. On the day that I got saved, you can maybe name a date when you met Jesus. Jesus saved me on such and such a date. And while that is a perfectly biblical, perfectly uh, acceptable way to view salvation, that is not all that the Bible has to say about salvation. Salvation is not only an, a past event, but it's a present ongoing reality. Did you know that right now, you who are Christians, you are being saved? You are being transformed to look more like Jesus. And perhaps even most important of all is in the future, on the day when Jesus returns, when he stands before all who have ever lived to judge the living and the dead, that is the day that you want to be saved. Amen? That is the day looking ahead when you want to be saved. The Bible speaks very clearly that salvation is a future hope, past event, present reality, future hope. Remember what we looked at in Hebrews chapter three. In Hebrews 3, 6, he talks about how God is building us into his house. And he says, we, have, we are, I should say, his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. We are his house if we hold fast. Not we will be his house if we Hold fast, we are presently, right now, today, we are his house and it will be proven by holding fast 
our confidence and our hope. Hebrews 3.14, perhaps even more clear, says, for we have come, past tense, to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Future tense. What happened for you in the past will be proven over a lifetime of faithfulness to Jesus. The author of Hebrews does not think about salvation in the same way that we often do. My opinion is based on the the evidence we've already seen in previous chapters of Hebrews, if we were to ask the author of Hebrews, well, hey, in, in, in chapter six, you were talking about these people. Well, were they Christians who then fell away? I believe that the author of Hebrews would kind of kick his head off to the side like a puppy dog and kind of look at us. What are you talking about? They, they weren't Christians. They didn't make it to the end. I'm inclined to agree with one Bible scholar, David De Silva, where he says, are the people described in 6, 4 through 5 saved individuals in the estimation of the author of Hebrews? They cannot be. Since salvation is, for this author, the deliverance reward that will await the faithful at the return of Christ. Now, that's just context. I believe that New Testament and Hebrews context leads us to that conclusion. But let's actually look at the passage we're looking at today. That was all just introduction. Let's get into the verses here. Verse four, he says that something is impossible. For it is impossible in the case of those, and then we'll unpack what this is. Skipping down to verse six, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. The Bible says that a broken heart and a contrite spirit, God will never deny. There has never been a case in the history of the world where someone has come to God in genuine repentance and he has turned them down. Is that good news? However, what the author of Hebrews is saying is there is a case in which repentance is impossible. Something happens where repentance is no longer an option. One of the ways that people try to maybe get around this is they say, well, the word impossible, maybe it doesn't really mean impossible. Sometimes words in the Bible, they're very extreme, but what's intended is, is, is maybe not for this word to be taken literally. I'll give you an example. This is a good example. Uh, at one point, Jesus said, you will be hated by all men for me. Now, did Jesus literally mean that every single human is going to hate you because you're a Christian? No, he did not. What he meant was all kinds of people are going to hate you because you're associated with me. Get used to not being the cool kid on the block, dear Christians. That's what Jesus meant. So sometimes people look at this, well, maybe the author of Hebrews doesn't really mean impossible. Maybe he means it's really hard. Not impossible, but just unlikely or uncommon. I I don't agree with that. Peter O'Brien, one Bible commentator says this, our author uses this word impossible in three other places in his discourse stating that it is impossible for God to lie. How many of you hope that impossible really means impossible there? Impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins and impossible to please God apart from faith. The expression clearly means that something cannot happen. Well then, someone says, well, if it's impossible, maybe we're just talking about a, a hypothetical situation. This is just theory. Maybe it's, it's just describing what it would look like if a genuine Christian could fall away, but it, it would never really happen. These verses are, are not, um, they're, they're not the whole picture. I don't, I don't believe that's the case either. 
Let, let me ask you this. How many of you have known someone who at one point in their life made a profession of faith and walked with Jesus who are not currently walking with Jesus? Raise your hand. How many of you know? That is a lot of us. That is almost all of us. I don't think the author of Hebrews, I don't think the Holy Spirit is putting words on this page just to fill up space. Philip Hughes, another Bible commentator, says this, the danger of apostasy, it must be emphasized, is real, not imaginary. Otherwise, this epistle with its high-sounding admonitions must be dismissed as trifling, worthless, and ridiculous. Certainly, in our author's judgment, the situation is one of extreme gravity. This is real. Some people are in danger of walking away, but it's not too late. It's not too late. Peter O'Brien, who I quoted earlier, says, some are apparently in great danger, but it's not asserted that they have committed apostasy or falling away. This warning, like the encouragements and promises, is intended to prevent this from happening, and apparently the author believes that his listeners, or at least some of them, can still avoid such disastrous consequences. Otherwise, there would be no point to the warning. So what is the warning? What is, what is it that's so controversial? We need to look at the people in question. We need to know what it is that is being said about these people. Let's look in verse four at this description of the people. It's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. Six descriptions used about the people in question. The first one is this, they've been enlightened. They've been enlightened. What does enlightened mean? It means that the lights have been turned on. Where once there was darkness, now there is light. In a general sense, maybe we could say these are people who all of a sudden have some sort of an idea about who God is. Maybe they have some exposure to the truth. There's another theory, and this one's I just mentioned uh, because it's interesting to know. In early church history, we read that the word enlightened started to be used for those who were baptized. People who were baptized were said to have been enlightened. Whether it was in the specific sense baptized or in the general sense of just enlightened that our author of Hebrews is intending, does enlightened necessarily mean saved? Doesn't the Bible say that, that even the demons know that there's one God and they weep and they shudder? Or that people can be baptized and not truly saved? So enlightened doesn't mean that it has to be a Christian. Second descriptor, tasted the heavenly gift. Again, this could be more of a general sense. They've, they've known that God is good. How many of you who are Christians would say, following God is good? <laughs> How many of you would say, I, I like following God. I am thankful for the benefits of knowing God. It could be possibly a more specific reference to taking communion, the bread being Jesus' body, which is broken for us, the wine being his blood spilled out. Maybe they've tasted of that heavenly gift. Either way, does someone who's, seen that God is good, does that necessarily mean that they're a Christian? The Bible says the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike, doesn't it? And there are people who take communion all the time who are not truly Christians. Number three, they've shared in the Holy Spirit. 
well, certainly this has to be someone who's a Christian because Christians get the Holy Spirit. Yes, Christians are given the Holy Spirit on the day of salvation, but is shared in the Holy Spirit the same as being filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit taking up residence? I actually think this word shared is very critical. Shared being a picture more of sharing in the community, sharing in the life of the people of God. We looked at, actually last week, that verse about the laying on of hands, meaning uh, the Holy Spirit is present with God's people when they can lay hands on one another and just be connected in relationship. Uh, One pastor, Ray Stedman, puts it this way, the translation shared implies something done in company with others and may well be linked with the laying on of hands referred to in 6.2. This would envision a group response to the gospel as we see in many evangelistic rallies today, but it does not mean that all who so respond exercise saving faith. What he's saying is, how many people have you seen go to maybe a a Greg Laurie or a Billy Graham crusade and they fill out a card and they go forward, but then a few weeks later, they've just kind of fallen away and they're not really living for Jesus. Anybody ever seen that happen? I don't think that shared in the Holy Spirit absolutely has to mean a Christian. If you're a Christian, yes, we share in the Holy Spirit. But the Bible speaks in other terms about the the Holy Spirit living within us and bringing us from death to life. Number four, they've tasted the goodness of the word of God. Christians, do we love the word of God? I was not as enthusiastic as I was hoping for. Christians, do do we love the scriptures? Do we love the word of God? Christians understand that, as Jesus said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the Father we, we understand that the word of God is life. But how many of you know non-Christians who sometimes like to quote Bible verses? Just because someone's tasted of the word of God. Oh, I think the Bible's a very uh, important, influential book. It's had a lot of uh, good wisdom, good collection of wisdom. My favorite part, personally, with the good wisdom is when Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. That, that's the good wisdom. I wonder if that's, that people maybe missed or something, but that was my sarcasm voice coming out, by the way. Um, People sometimes just taste, they nibble on the word of God instead of feasting on it. Number five, they've tasted the goodness of the powers of the age to come. In the age to come, there's gonna be no more sickness. In the age to come, there's gonna be no more divorce. In the age to come, Jesus will rule uh, in perfection and in righteousness. And so when we taste the goodness of the powers of the age to come, that's a reference to miracles, God healing people, God bringing marriages back from the edge of divorce, God doing all sorts of that stuff that only God can do. People who are part of this community, they've tasted those good gifts. They've they've been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared in the spirit. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God. They've tasted of the powers of the age to come. And yet, number six, it says, then they have fallen away. And you and I may, may sit here and scratching our heads. How is it possible for someone to share that much in the things of God and yet to fall away? Let me just encourage each and every one of us to not be arrogant or prideful to think that if not for the grace of God, we couldn't fall as well. We cannot be prideful in this. This is not an opportunity for us to say, what's wrong with those people that they would fall away? No, this is an opportunity for us to A, soberly self-assess and B, have hearts that are broken and compassionate for those who have fallen away. And I I want to say this, especially again, for those of you who may have a more sensitive conscience, as you read this list, you think, yep, I fell away, I, I sinned, I committed some sin and now God has kicked me out of the family. 
If you're thinking that, I'd like to turn, as we often should in times like this, to our boy, John Calvin, who says this. This is very important. The author of Hebrews speaks not here of theft or perjury or murder, murder or drunkenness or adultery, but he refers to a total defection or falling away from the gospel when a sinner offends not God in some one thing, but entirely renounces his grace. We're talking about a specific situation here. You, if you committed theft yesterday, that is not pleasing to God. Repent and rejoice in the forgiveness that's yours. If you committed adultery, that is not pleasing to God and there will be very painful consequences that you will have to deal with particularly if you're married or have children, but that is not an unforgivable sin. Turn to God in repentance and faith and receive the grace that is yours. There is no sin that is beyond the reach, the saving reach of our Savior Jesus. Do I get an amen from anybody on that? You are not too far gone. What our author in Hebrews is talking about is someone who has just turned their back on the gospel. I want nothing to do with Jesus. I want nothing to do with his gospel, with his grace. And what's worse, it almost could be said that they're, they're taking advantage of God's goodness. Michael Horton, a, a, a systematic theology writer, says this, the writer describes those who belong only outwardly to the covenant community. Those who apostatize have been beneficiaries of the Spirit's ministry through the means of grace, even as merely formal or external members of the covenant community. What he's saying is they've benefited. They've benefited having been baptized or enlightened. He thinks that that's what the author is saying. They've also tasted the heavenly gift and the supper, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, but they have not actually received or fed upon Christ for eternal life. So what you have to remember is, in particular, in, in this culture, in the, the ancient Near East, actually in many other cultures in the world, when a gift is given, there is an expectation of response. When a gift is given, there is an expectation of response. How many of you have ever given somebody a gift and you were so excited to give them that gift and then you received a less than enthusiastic response? Did you like that? <laughs> a few years ago, we uh, were gonna surprise our children with a trip to Disneyland on Christmas Day. I know, right? And, and my wife probably found it on Pinterest or something. There was like a box and a balloon and outfloated Mickey Mouse. And it was like, kids, do you get it? We're going to Disneyland today. And my kid's response was, cool. Can I go play with the Play-Doh I got now for Christmas? And I, I just remember feeling so spurned. An hour later, they got it. They're like, oh, you mean like today? Like we're going to Disneyland today? Like this is not theoretical? Then they got very excited and it was, it was happy. Can you imagine how God must feel to pour out so much blessing time and time again, gift after gift after gift after gift, blessing after blessing after blessing, only to be met with this mocking, this spurning, this turning away. This is not an unintentional sin. This is not a, man, I'm, I'm morally weak. This is a, I'm rejecting what God has said through his son, Jesus. 
Continuing on in, in verse six, you need to see how grievous it is. It's impossible, he says, why? To restore them to repentance because they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. As if it wasn't clear enough that this is really serious, we are talking about it, it, the activity, the action that these people are doing is re-crucifying Jesus. See, again, that's different from just falling Falling is different than falling away. The Bible is clear that Christians do fall. It's not necessarily joyful about it, but there's a reality and an expectation Christians do fall. I'll give you just a couple of examples. Proverbs 24, 16, the righteous falls seven times and rises again. Man, I blew it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna arise and go to Jesus because there's grace for me to be had there. James 3, 2, we all stumble in many ways. James is writing to Christians in that letter. 1 John 1, again, John is writing to Christians. He talks beloved and brothers. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Is it relieving to anyone here to know that what the author of Hebrews is not pushing for is some sort of legalistic perfectionism? Oh, you blew it, you messed up. Done. Apostate. That's not what we're talking about here at all. Again, sin is never pleasing to God, but there's grace, abounding, abundant grace. Christians do fall, but Christians do not fall away. It says they're re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. When, when Jesus was crucified, he died in our place for our sins. The gospel writers describe a scene in which people walked by Jesus and they mocked him. Not only was he stripped naked, not only was he nailed to a, a Roman cross, not only was he uh, the object of the wrath of the, the Roman government and the Jewish religious leaders, but people spat at him and they mocked him oh, if you're the, 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 the son of God, why don't you just bring yourself down off that cross? Contempt, scorn, shame. Friends, you and I are invited before we're Christians to see ourselves as part of that mocking crowd. One of the songs we sang earlier and how deep the father's love, it says, ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. Apart from Christ, we would have been in that crowd. But thanks be to God that his Love enters in, the, the, the cross does its work where we now see the horror that our sin has caused and we repent of that and we turn to God. And now the cross, rather than standing there mocking Jesus for being on the cross, we stand there thanking him for being willing to die on the cross for us. That's the Christian's experience of the cross. This is not describing Christians. They're re-crucifying the son of God, holding him up to contempt, and it's to their own harm or to their own destruction. John Barry, another Bible commentary. I'm sorry this is such a quote fest, by the way, but I just wanna make sure uh, you guys hear what many other Christians have thought, how they've wrestled through it. Um, all of these are available in the sermon notes that we post up on our website. Those who fall away are metaphorically crucifying the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. They are making a mockery of him like those who physically crucified him. 
They know the truth and yet have turned away, so they are in league with the forces working against God. You are God's team or playing for the enemy. The enemy killed Jesus and celebrates his death. Christians celebrate his resurrected life. And here we can see that the author of Hebrews is really driving us to a point that there's no neutral, there's no middle ground. You are either following hard after Jesus or you are in danger of falling away. Look at the analogy that he uses in verse seven and eight. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. This almost calls to mind a little bit of a picture of the parable of the soils that Jesus himself told Notice these two lands, these two pieces of property. They both drink the rain that falls on it. What's the rain? It's God's goodness. It's his blessing. It's his grace. Both pieces of property drink the rain. One produces a crop. One produces fruit and the other produces thorns and thistles. One is growing in the fruit of the spirit. One is growing to become more like God. The other is just bearing thorns and thistles and it's dry and it's dead and its end is to be burned. Here's the point. There's no such thing as spiritually neutral. Let me, let me say this. When we think about you're on team Jesus or you're on the enemy's team, I can't help but think of many, particularly of my generation, those who were maybe raised in the church, and now it's become almost a virtue to say, yes, I left all that church baggage behind me, and now I'm on a spiritual quest of exploration. I actually have friends, people who I know personally, that will speak in mocking tones about their church upbringing. Oh yeah, it was so cheesy. Oh yeah, it was so uh, controlling. I mean, I know that people have bad experiences in church, but, but there's something different where it's, I'm, I'm now free. I'm free from the church. I'm free from the people of God. I'm on this path of spiritual exploration, particularly here in more progressive Seattle area. I, I see this commonly. Do you guys see this? this I'm, on a, I'm on a quest, a spiritual quest. And they, they almost speak of it like it's a virtue, like it's this noble thing to break off all of these awful shackles of walking in the church and the people of God. Friends, the church has its problems, to be sure. But that is not a virtue. To, to wander, to ask, um, maybe that truth is found somewhere else besides Jesus. Oh, everyone has their own path. Everyone experiences God in their own way. It's very dangerous ground. It's very dangerous to say that it's a good thing to just maybe kind of float and do a grab bag spirituality, add a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this piece, whatever suits my fancy, instead of taking God at his word. It's very dangerous. And I fear there are many who are on that path who their end will be destruction. My heart breaks for them. The author of Hebrews closes out this section and kind of turns the corner into the next. Verse nine, he says, though, though we speak in this way, 
Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Oh, oh good. Things that belong to salvation. By the way, I wanted to include this verse because I wanted you to see yet one more contrast. There's a contrast. People group A, not good things. People group B, in your case, better things. Things that belong to salvation. I think that's another reason why the author of Hebrews would say the people described in these earlier verses, they're not saved, but the ones who he's sure of will experience better things. They are saved. They're gonna experience salvation. My conclusion is that the people described in these verses are not genuinely Christians. They never were truly saved, regenerated, adopted. They merely looked on the outside like Christians. It could be rightly said that they were unsaved believers. One more quote from Michael Horton. The sin of apostasy then is a grim and far more than a merely hypothetical possibility for persons who through identification with the people of God have been brought into the sphere of divine blessing. They may be baptized as Simon the magician was, occupied in Christian labors as Demas was, that's another person in the New Testament who fell away, endowed with charismatic gifts, preachers even, healers of the sick, casters out of demons, privileged to belong to an inner circle of disciples as Judas was, and yet their heart may be far from the one they profess to serve. Here, here, here's, here's why I think this is really important. Because I believe that Jesus said, my sheep belong to me and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And I believe that the no one who can snatch them out of his hand includes you. You can't snatch yourself out of Jesus' hands. If you belong to Jesus, you belong to Jesus. If you are saved and adopted into the family of God through the blood of Jesus, well then, our father doesn't unadopt his kids. You're adopted for life. The danger here is of putting your hope in something besides God's grace, besides God's goodness, besides his sovereign hold over your life. Persevere. Don't drift. Pay attention. Take stock of your own life, your own commitment to Jesus, and then rejoice, dear Christian, when you find that bedrock of assurance that you belong to Jesus because of his blood. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Him and him alone. Dear Christian. Let me close with just five more points. <laughs> and you think I'm joking. Briefly, I, wanted, I want us to just think about this because like I said earlier, we all know people who have wandered. Almost all of us raise our hand. We've known people who have maybe walked away from faith in Jesus. How are we to think of them? How are we to assess that situation? There's, there's kind of the, the two extremes. One extreme would be, well, we're not supposed to judge, so who really knows? I don't, I don't know what's going on with them. The other extreme would be, no, they haven't come to community group for a couple of weeks. They're probably apostate. <sighs> we are not God. We are not sovereign. We do not know the depth of people's hearts. Only God truly knows who is his and who belongs to him. Amen. And yet at the same time, Jesus did give us instructions about how we are to think about those who appear to be Christians who may or may not be. Let me give you just briefly, I promise, five 
points, five things to think about from the scripture. Well, four from the scriptures and one from John Calvin, because uh, I like him. The first one is this, look for fruit. Matthew chapter seven, Jesus says, uh, you gotta beware of false prophets. They're gonna come to you. They're gonna look like sheep, but inwardly they're really wolves. And you need to look for the fruit in their lives. What is the, what is the evidence? What is the pattern in their lives? By the way, fruit, we need to define fruit as the Bible defines fruit. Fruit is not uh, being the, the smartest or the t- most talented or the best looking. Fruit is, it, say it with me if you know it, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Look for the fruit that the Holy Spirit grows in people's lives. Number two, look for repentance. A genuine Christian will walk in a pattern of ongoing repentance. 2 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul just gives us a very good illustration of how to tell the difference between genuine repentance versus someone who's just sorry that maybe their life's messed up a little bit. He calls it worldly grief versus godly sorrow. Look for fruit, look for repentance. Number three, Christians, this is the one from John Calvin. Think with a charitable judgment. John Calvin encourages us to think, when we think about other Christians, if we have a hard time telling, think with a charitable judgment. You and I can tend to be, if we're not careful, critical. Amen? Okay? So think with a charitable judgment. Believe the best. Love believes all things, hopes all things, right? 1 Corinthians 13. Number four, correct with gentleness. If you see somebody that doesn't have apparently fruit in their life, maybe they're not walking in repentance, you're, you're thinking with a charitable judgment, but you're just not sure. Where, where are you with Jesus? What is, what is the evidence of your life? Uh, Paul instructs Timothy, one of his young pastoral uh, protégés, to correct with gentleness. What's crazy is he, Paul instructs Timothy to correct false teachers with gentleness. He talks about correcting your opponents with gentleness. Who knows... God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the, of the devil. So when you're correcting somebody, dear Christian, do so with gentleness. You never know what God might do. You, you don't know the deepest depths of their heart. Maybe they're in a period of wandering and God's gonna lovingly bring them back. So correct with gentleness. Don't burn bridges and blow people up. Number five, always Always hold out hope. You do not know what the future holds. If somebody that you know or love has wandered away from faith, they don't seem to have fruit, they don't seem to have repentance, you've tried talking to them gently and they're just wandering, then don't give up hope because until the day that they take their last breath or until the day that Jesus returns, there's always hope that someone can be restored into faith of Jesus, faith and relationship with God's people. Always hold out hope. 1 Corinthians 5 is a church discipline case where the apostle Paul actually tells the church there's a man who has been in ongoing, unrepentant sexual sin. Paul says you need to remove him. You need to excommunicate him from the church because he will not listen to these correcting words that are coming. And Paul says, I want you to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now just pause. Does that sound like an optimistic outlook? Paul says, I need you to turn him over to the devil. Get him out of the church so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Apostle Paul still has hope that even this man who has just walked in really hard-hearted, unrepentant sin, he he could be restored and be saved. Always hold that hope. So, 
So what do we do with this truth? First of all, for any of you who are not Christians, I, I invite you to build your life on Jesus. Have your hope founded on the right person. For others of you who maybe you, you've looked, you're like, my, my, my hope is not founded on Jesus. I've kind of believed that maybe I'm a Christian because I like to go to church or try to do the right things. Repent of that and become a Christian. Don't be an unsaved believer. Become a saved believer. God does a miracle in your heart, transforms you, puts you on stable ground. But for others of you, I want to I invite us to do something a little bit different today. I mean, there's a lot of hands, dozens of hands that were raised when I asked if you knew somebody who maybe was wandering and you were concerned for them and fearful for them. And I wonder if we might even take a minute just right now here in service to pray for those people. So I'm gonna invite you to, to do something that's not particularly common for us, but if you have somebody on your heart that you are concerned for, that you love, that you care about, and you wanna pray for them, I'm gonna invite you to stand to your feet right now. You don't have to come forward. You don't have to speak names. You don't have to do anything. I just wanna invite you to stand if you would. And for those of you who are maybe sitting nearby, again, you don't have to do this, but if you'd be willing, maybe just go next to somebody near you, place a hand on their shoulder, um, gather around together. I'm, just, I'm gonna pray right now. And, and I don't know all the names, faces, who you're thinking of, but I'm gonna pray. God knows. And let's lift these people up to him in love and in care and in concern. Let's pray. God, I don't know all the names, I don't know all the faces, but we trust that you do. God, for my brothers and sisters here in this room, there are many people that we are concerned for. People who at one point said they loved Jesus. People who at one point seemed to be walking with him and now seem to be far from him. God, I am asking, I'm pleading. God, in your grace and your goodness and in your sovereignty, I'm asking that you would do a miraculous work. God, draw these people to yourself. God, whatever it takes, we're asking that you'd bring them close to you. God, maybe for some, they really are genuinely Christians and they're just wandering right now. They're, they're not using good judgment. Would you just correct them and bring them back to you? God, for others, maybe they were around Christians, but they never were truly saved. God, for the first time, would you save them? Would you redeem them? Would you bring them into saving relationship with you? God, and would you use us to, to speak words of love and speak words of life to them? God, the pressure's off. We don't save people. You do. And so would you help us to be faithful witnesses and loving friends to them? We pray all of this in Jesus' good name. Amen. You can have a seat. I'm gonna invite us to respond now and we're gonna respond in a couple of ways. The first is uh, through the giving of our tithes and offerings. So uh, financial stewards, if you'd please come forward. We're gonna give again, not to try to earn salvation, but out of joyful and loving response to the salvation, the adoption that we've already received. If you want information about how to give online or how to text to give, you can find that on your Connect card. I'm gonna read some discussion questions though while they uh, collect the offering. First one is this, for those who you've seen walk away from Jesus, what happened? What circumstances or events led to the change? And, and as always, I really wanna encourage you, please don't gossip. This isn't a time to start talking about specific people by name necessarily, but to think about those situations and those scenarios, whatever it is that happened, because we wanna make sure that we're um, guarded and we're uh, helping others not fall into those same traps. 
Second one is more of just a self-assessment. If the enemy was going to tempt you to walk away from faith in Jesus, what tactics would he use? Are you in danger of drifting or even worse? Number three, the security of our salvation is not based on our good works, but on Jesus' love and power. And how should this truth affect our hearts and lives? And then number four, how can we help each other practice humility and avoid dogmatism uh, when it comes to assessing the state of someone's salvation? We need to wrestle through that. Those last few points I talked on. And then pray. This, if, if ever there was a good week to spend a few more minutes to carve out a few extra uh, minutes of time in your community groups to pray, this would be a great week. Pray for yourself, your family, your community group, and our church that we would all remain faithful to Jesus throughout our lives. And then pray for those you know who are wandering that Jesus would bring them to himself. We're gonna respond with a celebration of the Lord's table, the bread, uh, being representative of Jesus' broken body for us, the wine being representative of his blood that was spilled for us. This is for Christians. If you're a Christian, you're welcome to join us at the table. And may it serve as a reminder for us, we, we taste this bread, we taste this wine, but what we really need to feed upon for eternal life is Jesus Christ himself. And we're gonna sing. Pastor Joe is gonna lead us in time of singing. We're gonna reflect on this grace that holds us. This first song speaks about no matter when, even when we wander or when life's circumstances get difficult, that God is still near and there's neither height nor depth nor anything in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, which is a good truth to be reminded of, amen? And so I invite you to sing these songs out with, with great joy. Let's stand together and I'll pray and we'll begin our time of singing in response. God, we thank you for your word. I thank you, God, there are times uh, where certain verses or passages we might naturally want to avoid because they make us feel uncomfortable. But God, I'm thankful that you give us these hard words at times because ultimately we trust you that you will use them in us to bring us to the place of spiritual life that you desire. May we respond now in faith. May we not just taste of the heavenly gift, but may we feed richly upon Christ Jesus in whose name we pray. And everyone said...